If you have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to Mark chapter 12. Maybe you don't have a Bible with you. Pull out your cell phone or pull out your iPad. Pull it up that way or there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can do that. Don't ever be afraid to use your phone or your iPad in here, okay? I'll just point you out to everybody that you're texting in the middle of service. But. No, don't be, don't be afraid if you've got it electronically to use it that way or, or pull up a Bible. There's Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. If you don't own a Bible and you'd like to, we have free Bibles here for you. So let us know. They're usually stacked on the table in the back, but there's other books back there right now. So we really want you to have a copy of God's Word, though. So if you need a Bible, let us know that. Last week, um, we looked at the, the lives of the Pharisees and how they interacted with Jesus, and especially how they missed the activity of God. When we were told, God said, if you seek after me and seek after me with all your heart, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And then we see very clearly the Pharisees missing God. We have to assume they weren't really seeking after God. Rather, they were operating out of their own knowledge. Well, I want to bring you back to the Pharisees this morning for another story in Mark chapter 12 as we look at a new component of grace. And I want to help you with this thought of grace for just a minute. Maybe someone here in the auditorium has their own personal definition of God's grace. Would you mind sharing that with us? If you have a personal definition, how would you define grace? Go ahead, Sherry. Unmerited favor. favor. Excellent definition. That's good. I've I've heard it described this way way back when I was in Bible college. Um, A professor said, God's mercy is him keeping from us what we do deserve, God's grace is giving us what we don't deserve. So unmerited favor, excellent definition for that. So as we look at grace in a new way this morning, I want to give you a verse that perhaps you've never seen before that tends to put grace in a category that's out of sight and for that reason, out of mind. Let me take you to the screen and I'll explain to you what I'm talking about. 2 Corinthians 8.7, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth and he said this, but just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Grace in relation to money. Now, there's a thought that most people never associate grace with, money and grace together, because many of us think of money related to the church in very much the Old Testament fashion under legalism. Here's a thought that I want you to take forward into the story of Mark chapter 12. How we give to God, and it doesn't just have to be money, how we give to God really reveals our heart. It tells a whole lot about who we are. Oh, in truth, we don't talk about money a whole lot here at New Hope. As a matter of fact, in the years, this very short life of this church that we've existed, this is the first time I've ever taught on money here. And I've had each people come to me after each of the services saying, finally, I'm so glad you actually gave us some inst- instruction on money. So bear with me because I'll probably give you more now that I've been encouraged to do that. So here we go into this particular passage. And I want you to understand as you come at this with the thought of grace being related to money, that when Paul says what he does in 2 Corinthians, there has to have been a major tr- life transformation that took place. Because he's told us that he's a Pharisee. He's the Pharisee of Pharisees, trained in the school of Gamaliel. So think of him like we looked at Pharisees last week, a person who lived with legalism. 
who's now saying on the opposite side, 180 degrees different, that giving to God is really a measure of grace as opposed to a measure of legalism. So we keep that in mind as we come into this setting in Mark chapter 12, verse 38. It's Wednesday. Jesus is going to be arrested on Thursday, crucified on Friday. And so on Wednesday, we find him in a very public setting in the Gentile corner of the temple. Go with me to verse 38. It says this, In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplace and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for the appearance' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation." As you read about Jesus, you discover very quickly he has a zero-tolerance policy for fakes and for hypocrites. And he's very much willing to point them out. And specifically, what he's doing is pointing out their external character. What are they doing? Parading around in these long robes. Now, this is Passover week. And Jesus is in a quadrant of the temple square where thousands of people can fit in. Literally, in the court of the Gentiles, you can pack thousands of people into that particular place. Men and women from all walks of life have come to hear Jesus. We're told that there's a massive crowd, and he's pointing out the scribes. The very people who work at the temple are walking around in the temple courtyard, and Jesus says, see those guys? Avoid them. They got the long robes on? That should tell you who they are. What's the deal with the long robes? These are scribal robes. Now, way, way, way back in the time of King David, in the time of King Saul, the robes meant something. They were shorter. They were more like what we think of as a woman's stole or a cape. But over a period of time, because those stoles or those capes became associated with their holiness or their righteousness, they began to lengthen their robes, thinking, well, if people paid attention to us with shorter robes, how much more so would they pay attention to us with longer robes? And then they put tassels on the end of them, and they lengthened them all the way to the ground, literally to the point where they were tripping over them. They looked like kings walking around. They were very, very unique, expensive, fancy pieces of clothing. And Jesus says, you see those guys, what you're seeing is appearance. It's all for show. These are the guys who devour widows' houses. So I told you last week, God will always tell us the truth about who we are. Well, just file this thought away in your mind. He says these individuals will devour the homes of widows. What are these men doing? They're plundering elderly women who have lost their husbands. Now that should tell you something because 180 degrees opposite of that is God's Word in the Old Testament saying, honor the widows, care for them, the orphans in their distress. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to the book of the James in the New Testament, Jesus' own brother, he begins quoting some of the Old Testament when he says this in James 1.27. You'll see it on the screen. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress. The concept of visit is you you pay attention to people to find out what's going on in their life with the intention of helping them. So Jesus is saying these guys are completely the opposite. They're greedy. They're always wanting and taking more. They're never giving. They're gluttons. Here's a little detail that you might not know about the scribes. Not only are they the legal experts of their time, They're also the estate planners for Israel. They're the financial planners of the first century. 
And so because they're the legal experts and the financial planners, when a man from a household died, they were the first to arrive on the scene and help a widow set up her estate to manage her money. And very, very quickly, they discovered how much a widow had in her household budget. And it wasn't long before the system really got corrupted to the degree that the scribes started taking advantage of the system, using the money that the widows had for their own purposes, racking up huge legal bills so that at the end of the life of the widow, she ended up owing the lawyer more money than her estate had, and she had to turn over her house to him just to pay the debt. That's why Jesus said, Whoa! These guys devour widows' houses. Now, on top of that, throughout the course of their legal counsel, they're demanding from the women that they give their money without reservation to the temple and keep pouring into the coffers, into these, as you'll see in just a few minutes, what's known as the trumpets. So this entire system, this corrupt system, is built on the fact that you had to bring your gifts to the temple. And so Jesus gets to the end of his comment in verse 40, and he says, just stay away from these guys because they even fake praying. For the appearance of men, they go through these long, long prayers. Just gag me. This is all set up to verse 41. He's contrasting the scribes and the Pharisees with this very, very poor widow who comes on the scene. Go with me to verse 41. And he sat down, meaning Jesus, opposite the treasury, and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. So Jesus has obviously left the court of the Gentiles. He's no longer in the public setting. He's gone behind the wall to the place where only Jewish women and Jewish men can go, the the court of the women. And this is the place where the treasury is at, where there are 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles, boxes with a trumpet on top, a large vault like a metal shaped of a trumpet bell where you could drop your coins and it would ring all the way down until it dropped into the box. Thirteen of those were set up in the treasury. Now remember, the entire system was set up so that you had to bring your money into the temple. The money went into the trumpet, dropped into the box, and came out and went right into the pockets of the scribes and the Pharisees. So literally, people are pouring their money into these receptacles. Why? Because the scribes and the Pharisees had taught people that you can buy God's favor. You can buy redemption. You could buy blessing. And the more that you gave, the more God will bless you and pour out His, His, His redemption upon you. That's how you purchase God's favor. You want to get God's attention? Bring more money. Well, that's the heartbeat of false religion. That's what you hear today many times on television and radio. Individuals who will say, you want God's blessing upon you? Send me such and such check and we'll make sure that you get God's blessing. And notice this, when people tell you that to send more money, it is the heartbeat of false teaching. That's why Jesus said in Luke 16, 14, the scribes and the Pharisees, they are lovers of money. He characterized them. He told the truth about who they are. That's why when Jesus came into the temple and he said, this is my father's house, you've turned it into a den of thieves. They really hated him for that because he told them the truth about who they were. So Jesus is observing this Passover crowd. They're putting money literally into the receptacles. Each of these trumpets had a different purpose. One was for the wood for the altar. One was for the salt used to season the meat. One, one was for oil, meant to light the lamps inside the, the Holy of Holies. 
Some of them were meant to take care of poor people. But each one had a specific purpose. So here's the setting. We have Jesus seated on the opposite side of the treasury. He, he finds a bench. Hope I don't make you guys feel uncomfortable. And he's looking between the heads of the crowds, and he can see the offering box. Thirteen of them lined up. He's obviously weary. It's the end of the day. He's been speaking publicly, and he's found a place to sit down. And look at the verse very closely. You you notice that it says he's watching not the boxes themselves. He's watching the people. The people who are coming. And Mark very specifically tells us there, there's in one sentence, he says, there's wealthy people putting in really large sums. He, he calls them out specifically. Why does that component stand out? Well, typically because the very wealthy people made a show of their giving. And, and when they arrived on the scene and there was a large amount of money put into the receptacles, somebody started blowing a trumpet. Can you imagine that if we attached a trumpet to our offering box? You, you put something in the box and the, and the horn begins to sound. And somebody after the last service tell me they're bringing their trumpet next week. They're going to stand over and start blowing. Now, the, literally, this is what they did. When they gave large sums of money, there was a band that struck up to begin to announce to the crowd, look at what this person has done. Why did they do that? Because in the first century culture, under legalism, prosperity was linked with righteousness. And if you've got a lot, God must really, really, really like you. And so therefore, you're somebody who should be put on display. You're someone whom everyone else should model their life after because God has given you so much. So typically, this show was made of giving. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew 6 two. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. The reverse of that is this question that goes along with people who can't give large amounts. What do I do if I can't give like that person can give? What does that say about me if there's no one to blow a trumpet when I do my giving? Well, that very thought sets the stage for this woman coming on the scene who literally doesn't have two nickels to rub together. So Jesus is sitting down, he's on the bench, and he lifts his head, and he looks across the room, and he sees this woman, and these people who are putting in large sums of money. Now, he's not condemning anyone who's putting in large amounts of money. There's, there's nothing about them being stingy. They have a lot, so they're giving a lot. But the contrast is stark, because this very poor woman steps on the scene who's being devoured by the system, severe abuse going on, and we're told this in verse 42. A poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. She's unnoticed by anyone else. The crowd is busy. It's Passover time. Who's going to notice a small, poor widow? God. Let me show you an image that might help you. I think images are very helpful in times like this to see what they might have saw at that time. You, you see the trumpet in the box below in the foreground. It's a little shaded and faded. But a very simple person standing in the midst of opulence, 
men with long robes on who are obviously very powerful, and she drops in two little copper coins. The word is lepta. But Mark can't even use that word. That's one of the ways that we know that he's probably writing to the Romans because they didn't even have a word in their language for how small her coin was. Lepta was the smallest denomination in the Jewish coinage of the day. It's actually one-sixty-fourth of a denarii. What is that? Well, that's a day's wages in the Roman world. Literally, I did some calculations and broke it down. If it's one-sixty-fourth, it's what you earn in six minutes if you're a laborer today. What do you earn in six minutes? That's what she has. If you'd earn $10 an hour, she's got a buck. She's got $1. Now, I detect nothing but sheer humility in this moment. She has no expectations, and she certainly wants no spectators, no trumpet. It's sufficient that God is aware. So Jesus does something absolutely fascinating in this moment. Go with me to verse 43. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Jesus is so countercultural. Everything he says is not what you expect him to say, it's the opposite. This woman put in something different than everyone else. Now, obviously, the disciples are not with him, they're preoccupied with whatever's going on in that moment. And so he takes the time to call them over to himself. He wants them to see what he sees. What he's seeing is so important that two days before he's about to be crucified, he says to his followers, you guys, come here. You have got to put your eyes on what I'm seeing. And so in verse 43, he says, truly, I say to you, here's the truth. I love it when Jesus speaks this way. In other words, listen up. Pay attention to this. See, it's not like everything else that's being said is untrue, but rather what he's about to say is so countercultural. He's going to communicate it in such a way he needs them to understand. So my reason, guys, for calling you over here, my reason for putting you on the bench with me is so you can see something that is extraordinary. This woman is giving everything that she has. See, this should be a clue to us. Jesus is not teaching about the amounts to give. Rather, what he's talking about is what does your heart look like during the giving? This poor widow put in everything. She's giving out of her lack of prosperity. Everyone else gave out of their prosperity, so it didn't cost them much. So here's what's more impressive. When you realize she had two coins, she could have kept one. I mean, she's a widow living in the first century where jobs are not plentiful. She could have kept one for herself, but she's giving it all. God's value system, according to this, is really measured on our commitment of our heart. So verse 44, Jesus speaks again and He says this, For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Uh, Just one Greek word for you today, and it's the word that's going to pop up on the screen. It's in your notes as well. What I want you to see is this Greek word for the word surplus that Jesus used. It's really talking about abounding to the degree that you've got excess, where you've got leftovers after the meal, to the point where you've got enough to share. That's the concept behind what Jesus is saying when they gave out of their surplus, super abundance. Uh, You may look at that and think, I'm not sure that really applies to me. 
what does prosperity really look like in this world that we live in today? You live in 2014 in North America. I assume in the United States because you're here this morning. So we live in a period of time in which there is an abundance of goods that even King Solomon could not have imagined. Can you imagine what it might have meant to the kings of old to be able to get on a jet airplane and fly around the world? An amazing thought. If you have $2,200 in assets today, you have more assets than 50% of the world's population. Staggering thought. If you have $60,000 in assets today, you have more than 90% of the world's population. See, that, that puts living in North America on a whole new plane. So when Jesus is talking about us being in a place where we have abundance, prosperity, we have to ask ourselves, is he talking about me? Is he talking about those who have that kind of wealth? When he looks at this widow woman, we'd have to say, in proportion and in spirit, she's giving way more than those of our society today. So we're seeing this individual who puts in all that she owned. How Jesus knew that, we don't know. How he knew there was two coins and that it was all that she had to live on. Mark doesn't tell us how he knew that. But here's what we do know. She's not going to be able to eat until she earns more. There's no freezer to go to. There's no place where they would store food in the way that we store food today. So she's not going to eat until she can earn some more money. What are the chances this elderly widow who's very, very poor is going to get hired by somebody? See, in God's economy, it's not the portion, it's the proportion. It's not the portion that you give, not the amount. It's the proportion in relation to what you have. So when I look at a passage like this, I always have to ask myself this kind of a question. How do I see Jesus in this? Other than understanding the technicality of him sitting there and watching this going on and, and what it is that he's talking about, how do I see him? Especially knowing that it's two days before he's about to be crucified. Here's how I see him. When I ask myself this question, what sort of giving would Jesus do? If we say that giving is really a reflection of the heart, it's a measure of where we're at in our relationship, Jesus is going to show total surrender in two days on the cross. It's with the heart that reveals where we're at. And Jesus is revealing completely where his heart is at. How we give reveals the heart. It's a grace. So what, what does New Testament-style giving look like? Well, let me take you back to 2 Corinthians 8. It says this again in verse 7. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Why is Paul focusing on that? Because he's lived in the legalistic system where people told him what he had to give and when he had to give it. And now he's living under grace. So he's writing to the Corinthians, and he uses a contrast. And if, you, if you've never read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I really encourage you to do that later today or this week, because it's all about money. It talks about our management of money. And so in that particular case, he's saying to the Corinthians, hey, you guys, the Macedonians, they really have their act together. 
They're doing it in such a way that it even surprised me. This is the way he said it, 2 Corinthians 8.3, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do it as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Meaning they sought God's heart about the right amount. Instead of just going with their gut... They're responding to how God directed them. How many of us could say that that's the way we give? I'm I'm not sure that I could say that. More likely, we fall into a system, a repetitive system, of determining how we're supposed to give to God, as opposed to coming to God and saying, what is God's will in this? This is why that's very important, because verse 12 says this, 2 Corinthians 8, 12, for if the willingness is there... The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. This one really should hit us hard over the head. It hits me hard because the temptation in human nature is to wait until I have more. When I reach such and such a point, that's when I'm going to give such and such amount. God says my measurement is based on what you have now, according to what I've given you already, not according to what you don't have. So, how do we estimate our giving 2014? Coming into the home stretch here, how, how do we figure out what to do with a passage like this? Would it not be great if God would just give us a flow chart? You, you earn this much and you have this much in assets, so let's plug in the formula. This is what you're supposed to give. That'd be cool. Well, that actually would be the legalistic system of the Old Testament. That's what that was. So, God doesn't do that. Matter of fact, what He does for us is He gives us two criteria this morning. And both of them are based on your heart. Let me put them up on the screen for you, but they're in your notes also. Uh, This morning, you'll see them there. Here's the two criteria that God has. First of all, by the ability that you have in proportion to what you have. And the second one is by the character of the person that's giving. I want to flesh that out for you just briefly with two verses. Look at the first verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Meaning, no one gets to tell you. It's between you and God. What you have decided is appropriate. And that goes into the second part. How we should give, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Do you think that those widows coming to those offering boxes were giving cheerfully? I'm guessing probably not. If they've got nothing and they're emptying out their purse, I think they're giving out of a pure heart, a real desire to give to God. But I'm thinking there's too much cheer going on knowing that there's no food waiting for them in the pantry. So I have to look at this passage and I ask myself, what could a 2,000-year-old penniless woman teach me today? Here's number one. If there is a willing heart in the amount of the gift, it makes no difference to God. He's looking for the willingness of the heart. Because without the heart being there and the desire to give to God cheerfully, he's saying you might as well keep it in your pocket. Charles Simeon, 1835, really nailed this. He said it this way, without that kind of heart, we can give everything we have to feed the poor and yet have not one atom of that which will be pleasing to our God. 
That, that's the willingness factor. Here's the second one. We've got to give our gifts in private according to God's Word, not for the show and not for applause. Enough said on that. We give our gifts cheerfully. The, word, the Greek word for cheerful in the Scriptures is actually hilarious, meaning laughter-giving. You go to the offering box just with a smile and a joy in your heart. And the fourth component of that is we give, and this is the hardest one, we give out of what we possess. That's where the trust factor comes in, and that is the hardest part. Because we tend to think that we're better money managers than God, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be so controlling of what we have. God knows what's coming at the end of the month better than we do. God knows what's coming a year from now better than what we do. So that's the really hard part where we have to deal with this issue of conviction. Just a moment on this thought. Many people find the tithe, meaning 10%, to be a a really good place to start. And and they find it to be a workable plan for giving. Well, not to discredit tithing in any way. I just want to clarify its relationship to the New Testament. Tithing today to give 10% of your income is a distant reflection of a very ancient system meant for the Old Testament. It's part of this ritual of the sacrificial system. And as long as it's not coercive, it could be a really good starting place. However, you can't claim the tithe as part of New Testament teaching. Paul Stagg really summed this up well. I wanted you to see his quote. He said it this way, At most, one is doing something only remotely analogous to the tithing practice of the Old Testament which was a tax to support the temple and the priestly system, a social and religious system which no longer exists. Tithes were obligatory in Judaism as a tax until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but they are not thus binding upon Christians. So come back with me to this story to end this. We have a world of men in this period of time whose hearts are bent on self-gratification a real desire to feed and line their own pockets. Can you imagine how refreshing this woman is to Jesus in this moment, knowing what's ahead of him in the next 48 hours? He sees this person with a heart totally sold out, who's pure in her giving, and a desire to honor God. She is a window in a dark, dark room. But I want to correct an error on this story. No matter, no matter where you're at in your walk, if you've been in church for any period of time, you've heard this passage before, and you've heard someone say something like this, that's how we ought to give. Sacrificially, we ought to empty the bank accounts. We, we ought to give everything that we have to the point where it hurts. Well, I want you to know that that view is not biblical. That is not God's teaching in Scripture. God's teaching in Scripture is that we give out of our heart, a joyful heart. So God is in favor of savings accounts. God is in favor of retirement plans. This woman, remember, is in a system which is devouring the widows, which is giving them bad financial advice, which is corrupt. That's the connection that Jesus is making between what happened in verse 38 and what you read in verse 41 and 42. Christian giving is not emptying out your bank accounts and then living destitute the rest of your life, wondering how you're going to feed your family. Her action is a reflection of a corrupt legalistic system. And she's just part of that system. But her heart is really, really pure. 
So she's left with this thought. I got a buck. I can either put it in the trumpet or I can buy food. The scribe's telling me if I get of it and put it in the trumpet that I'm going to get a blessing from God. Any system which takes the last coin out of a widow's purse when she cannot feed herself and uses it to line the pockets of corrupt leaders is a false system. That is not God's principles. And that's what you see being played out here. So we ask ourselves this question in closing. What is the biblical purpose of God's prosperity for us today? Why do we have what we have? To advance the work of His kingdom, primarily through the church, That's God's purpose, and to carefully steward all that He has provided us with. To be very, very careful with the things that He's blessed us with so that we can be a blessing to others. See, the New Testament does not teach communism. It teaches communism, meaning you are a blessing so that you can be a blessing to others. You're to share with what you have. So we're told this in Proverbs 21.20, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Your personal responsibility is provision for your household and for those whom God brings in your path to whom you can bless. Matter of fact, it goes one step further in 1 Timothy 5.8. It says this, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, God's purpose and prosperity in your life is that you would properly distribute it because it gives you great opportunity to speak into the lives of other people. But it also gives you great responsibility, doesn't it? It's a huge responsibility to steward what God has given us, especially when He gives us a warning like this. 1 Timothy 6.18, Instruct them who are rich in this present world to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and ready to share. Are you rich this morning? I am. I'm not ashamed to say it. I live in the United States of America. I am definitely better off than most of the world. I have to say the same is true of you. We are rich in this world, so we have a responsibility according to God's Word. And I'm not telling you this this morning, church, for the sake of guilt. There is no guilt associated with this. Just three things as you go out the door. If you currently don't actively participate in giving to the church, it may be for one of these three reasons. One, no one has ever challenged you to do it before. Well, consider yourself challenged this morning, okay? You're challenged. Two, you may look at the church and think, this church really doesn't need my money. That's an issue between you and God. You're going to have to really ask God, is is that true? Is that where you want my heart to be? And number three, and this is the hardest one, I told you this before, it's really a trust issue. It's a trust issue of, can I trust God to meet my needs at the end of the month if I give blank? Well, let me ask you this question because we are a very analytical society. We analyze everything to death. That's why we have so many news media outlets to give us different perspectives. So analyze this thought with me. I can trust the Lord God of the universe with my eternal salvation, but I can't trust Him with my money. I I can trust God for my eternal security, but I can't trust Him with my money. Probably because we're better at it, right? That's probably the thought that's going on. 
Well, let me close this with a prayer from David. And David, very specifically in 1 Chronicles 29, was thanking God for the prosperity in his life. Here's how it goes. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. How about if we close that way? Would you pray with me? Father, we do praise your name. We do lift you up. And we're willing to say everything that we have comes from you. It is your blessing upon us. Father, we just start right there with a grateful heart thanking you for your provision. But God, as we go out the doors right now, I just ask that you would really help us to be very conscious of having alert eyes looking to see where we can be a blessing to someone else. And Father, where you need to bring conviction on this issue about giving to the church, I ask that you would do that. We want to do what you ask us to do. Help us, Father. Give us strength. Give us courage. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.